Let's meet together at Genesis chapter 2. I want to let you know up front that uh, I'm taking the opportunity to address on this Valentine's Day some uh, related uh, marriage and family principles, but don't tune me out because the principles I'm going to share applies to friendships and to others' relationships as we come to the conclusion. Genesis chapter 2, we'll begin reading in a moment, beginning at verse 15. A wife and husband were having a tiff, and uh, things spiraled down to the point that they weren't speaking to each other. One day became two, two became three, and they trudged along in pride and silence until one night the husband realized that he needed her help to make sure that he was up very early at 5 a.m., in fact, in time to make an early business flight. Determined not to break the silence, which would be an act of surrender, uh, he took a piece of paper and uh, he wrote on it, please wake me up at 5 a.m., and left it on the nightstand where he knows she will see it. The next morning, uh, he wakes up, looks at the digital clock, and it's 9 a.m. He is furious. He notes a piece of paper on the nightstand on his side of the bed, and it reads, it's 5 a.m., wake up. (laughs) Where in the Bible do you find a, a perfect marriage? Uh, Abraham and Sarah, twice Abraham put her behind the eight ball by insisting that she uh, say, I am his sister. How about Isaac and Rebecca? They spent their entire marriage, according to scripture, in, in headlock over uh, the two children and the favoritism toward their boys. Maybe it was uh, Moses and Zipporah. Remember this couple? Uh, They got in a dispute over the dedication of their son, and uh, Zipporah really played hardball when she yells, you're just a husband of blood. Wow. David was a disaster as a husband. Uh, Solomon was worse. You know, if anybody needed the support of a good marriage, it was Job. Right? Have you noticed in the narrative of the book of Job that uh, Mrs. Job speaks twice in the book? When things really get tough, in chapter 1 there is that phrase that's repeated, uh, and there came another, and there came another. You have days like that too. When things really got tough, uh, he leaned upon Mrs. Job. She speaks twice in Scripture. Once, she says, curse God and be done with it. And the second one, she says, your breath smells bad. She's a real winner, isn't she, at Mrs. Job? I'm not making this up. Someone online said that the best marriage in the Bible was between Noah and Joan of Arc. You can't miss the teaching of Scripture that while there are varying degrees of compatibility, there are no perfect marriages. 
A growing, vibrant marriage never happens by accident. It is built upon basic, solid principles. And when a marriage breaks, it's not because the principles are broken. Martin Luther, the reformer, married a much younger woman. Her name was Catherine. She was a former nun. He called her affectionately Katie Marib. They had five children. And Martin Luther, who was 40, said this. Marriage is a school for character. Now, it'll knock the stuffing out of you, won't it? Marriage, by its very nature, uh, will force you to grow up. And then when the kids come, that's a, that's a whole new chapter. So for a few minutes this morning, on this Valentine's morning, we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to talk about making love last from Genesis 2. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden uh, to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may uh, freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat thereof you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from him, uh, he made a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and the woman, and were not ashamed. As the Creator God surveys his work, He shouts in six joyous refrains through chapter 1, It is good. It is good. And the apex of his creative activity comes at the end of chapter 1. Then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. Uh, The reader is unprepared for uh, the stark announcement concerning Adam. And the Lord God said, it is not good. Now, this word doesn't mean just the absence of something, but that something has come up short. 
The issue is loneliness, isn't it? It's not good that man should be alone. The original term here is very interesting. It literally means a piece or part of something. As for Adam, he was created to be a part of something that did not yet exist. Now this does not infer that single people are in some way unfinished. Some testify to having the gift of singleness. And for those who don't have that gift, the priority is living in community with others. Uh, John Ortberg said, community is a place of resurrection. God sets forth the general scheme that would mark societies through human history. Principles of human flourishing. I love that term. A landmark study out of Harvard, of all places, a generation ago, found these principles in all of the 28 civilizations that have marked mankind since the beginning of recorded history. They're all there. And in redefining marriage and family, America is on uncharted sea, an experiment destined to fail. Have you noticed in verses 19 and 20 that they seem to be stuffed into the story? If you delete them and reconnect verses 18 through 21, it makes perfect sense. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep. The question before the house is, why does the Holy Spirit record Adam's afternoon on safari? His name-calling gifts and responsibilities underscore several points. One, as you see it here, it underscores Adam's native intelligence before the fall. Dr. Henry Morris, the late Dr. Morris said, and I've always been intrigued by this, He said in one of his writings that in the fall, Adam lost 94% of his intelligence, his IQ. How in the world do you measure a thing like that? I'm not sure. In every discipline, there are geniuses who have changed our lives and changed our world. I want you to think about a time when you will have a perfect body and a new mind equipped with pre-fall IQ. One thing for sure, Jeff Foxworthy will be out of a job in that time. Adam's native intelligence in naming the animals. Second, These verses are stuffed into the story to expose Adam's obvious loneliness among creation and his superiority to it. We used to sing at summer camp, uh, the animals are coming two by two, the elephant and uh, the kangaroo. Adam wrote that. Noah wrote a second verse uh, to that. Everybody had somebody except Adam. As the animals parade by, although exhilarating, they're newly created, uh, Adam is sinking lower and lower. As we say here in the mountains, he's as low as a sled's track. 
I thought of Adam and uh, his animal naming uh, in Nairobi. The National uh, Game Park bumps literally up against the city. There is a high, high fence that keeps the animals off of Main Street. And when the director said, hey, before you guys get out of here, we want to take you on safari, uh, I wasn't that excited about it, really. I'd seen Animal Planet. Our family had been to Lion Country Safari down in Palm Beach where you drive through like Jurassic Park and and you go through and you see all the animals. And I said, okay, that would be cool. Wow, was I mistaken. Not to know that around the next turn uh, what you would run into. And at one point, um, the guide said, this is where we get out of the van. Now, I was very skeptical about getting out of the van. We got out. There were some hippos down in the river that he wanted us to see. So here's the guy with his rifle leading. And uh, so on the trail, we come up on some droppings. Now, dimensions are a little tough here, but it's like, uh, it's like flattened golf balls. I knew this was no possum. I just had a sneaking suspicion about that. And here's the trail, and here are the droppings. And I'm standing out, out far from the van, and I'm thinking, what if he decides to come back this way? What is this? What is this? Do you have any guesses? Anybody remember? He said, what, what did the pastor preach about this morning at church? He talked about droppings. Uh, <clears throat> what are these? Any guesses? Giraffe. Giraffe. With exhilaration, Adam names the animals A to Z, aardvark to zebra. And as the last couple passes by, he's thoroughly, thoroughly depressed. There's someone for everyone except Adam. He's the king of a perfect world, but he's alone in a crowd. In glaring contrast, when it 20 says, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Verse 18, I will make a helper comparable, which leads to our third point. The account of Adam's naming the animals is meant to enhance the readers and Adam's anticipation. I talked about timeless principles up front. There are three of them in this passage. Let me point out the first one. It is simply here that we discover that marriage as God intended is a purposeful relationship with two primary purposes, to provide companionship and balance. So God says, some of you are holding the the King James Version, I will make him and help meet, right? Who has the KJV with you this morning? How many of you, a number of you do? In mountain churches, that's often read as a noun, a helpmate. You know, I've heard guys stand up and say, you know, I just want to thank God for my helpmate. Now, wait a minute. It's not a noun. It's a noun and a verb. Do you have me? The word meet here is that old, old English word means fitting. A helper who is fitting is the whole point. The New King James says, a helper comparable, as I've read. The NIV is helpful, a helper suitable for him. 
The original term conveys several ideas. There's no place, no thought, of course, of inferiority here. God is described, this is a cross-reference, in Psalm 46.1 as our helper. It's the same Hebrew term. It literally means face-to-face. A helper who is face-to-face with him. It describes someone who provides what is needed, someone equipped to help in a unique way. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, 250 years before Christ, it's translated physician. Isn't that striking? One who helps, one who is comparable, one who assists to reach fulfillment. It also has the idea of strength here. A lady named Sandra wrote a national magazine. One night my husband Ken was in the bathroom looking for aspirin. He asked me if I'd seen the bottle and I went in and immediately pulled it out of the drawer he had been rummaging through. A little exasperated with him for always relying on me to find things. that familiar? I pointed to his eyes and I said, don't you think you should start using the gift God has given you? Ken smiled and said, I already do. (laughs) And she said, I melted. This passage is foundational. In fact, verse 24 is repeated five times in the New Testament. This is foundational to Ephesians chapter 5, where our role, men, is to love her and to lead her, and uh, her role is to follow with a Christ-like spirit. Peter adds a new dimension when he says, deal with her according to knowledge. That means much more than knowing her email address or where she likes to shop. It has to do with knowing her personality, knowing her as a woman, knowing her her love language. Mary and I led a, a couple's retreat some time ago in a state park up north. It was an exciting weekend. About 20 couples came together and one of the things we do in couples retreats is there's a session when I take the guys and Mary takes the the wives and um, we have separate sessions and we deal with some very particular issues. At this particular retreat, I uh, challenged the guys concerning uh, uh, knowing her. We read the first Peter verse together and uh, I said to her, listen, listen, um, send her flowers. Bring home flowers when it's not Valentine's Day or it's not her birthday. Uh, You know, leave a card on the bathroom mirror occasionally. Today I would say uh, send her an email or a text in the middle of her day. And I I was challenging those guys to be creative, to not get in a rut in their relationship. And there was one guy, he was probably in his mid-40s. I could tell I was pushing his button. I mean, he, he wanted to speak, you know, he wanted to discuss. And finally I came and I said, yes. He said, you know, a little bit of thumping. He said, uh, I bring my wife flowers all the time. I said, oh, you do? Are you ready for this? He said, I work at a funeral home. Wow. <laughs> 
I finished my time with the guys. I strolled around to a side room where Mary had been meeting with the ladies, and there was a wife sitting there pouring her heart out. Guess whose wife it was? Mr. Wonderful. Guys, we can become so preoccupied and so busy with important things, can't we? Everything in society works to separate the two of you emotionally. Hold that thought for a moment. Eve was a helper, comparable, underscore that term. The original text, it says, according to his opposite. Is that the statement of the morning or what? According to his opposite. Since the 1960s, secular educators, psychologists, sociologists, and feminists have insisted that any difference between male and female are due to social conditioning. Uh, We used to say girls are made of sugar and spice and everything nice, but boys are made of snakes and snails and puppy dog tails. There's nothing more politically incorrect than that. Dr. Dobson points out in his delightful book, Bringing Up Girls, and there is a companion volume, Bringing Up Boys. He says this, activists clearly don't agree. They began a pervasive campaign to change the way boys and girls were raised in an effort to homogenize their behavior. Parents were told that boys were too aggressive, flamboyant, rowdy, and, well, defective in many ways. They needed to be put through a reorientation program that would teach them to play with dolls and tea sets instead of trucks and balls. He goes on to show that the discovery of DNA has pulverized unisex theory and claims. Uh, He uh, piles on layer after layer of medical evidence that shows the physiological and the psychological uh, differences, even the, the physiology of the brain, right? For example, are you aware that the female brain has 15% more blood flow? Now, I'm going to leave the implications of that to you, okay? I don't know what they are, but it makes for dramatic differences. Dr. Dobson quotes a great story from a book called The Female Brain, written by a physician, author, mother. Listen to this. One of my patients gave her three-and-a-half-year-old daughter many unisex toys, including a bright red truck instead of a doll. She walked into her daughter's room one afternoon to find her cuddling the truck in a baby blanket rocking it back and forth and saying, don't worry, little trucky, everything will be all right. (laughs) And she concludes, this isn't socialization. The little girl didn't cuddle her trucky because her environment molded her unisex brain. There is no unisex brain. She was born with a female brain. One dad expressed it like this, the differences. When my daughter calls, I say three things. How's the weather? Need any money? Here's your mom. Women are totally different. 
A woman can talk on the phone for 30 minutes and you ask her who it was and she'll say, I don't know, it was a wrong number. Some experts say women communicate better than men because they're smarter. Think about it. A woman's best friend is diamonds. A man's best friend is a dog. Somebody observed that a woman has has the last word in any argument. Anything a guy says after that is the beginning of a new argument. She's a completer, not a competitor. So Valentine's Day is a wonderful opportunity just to express our love. Uh, I won't ask how many of you guys have given your wife a Valentine's card this morning, or you will this afternoon. I'm sure all of you will. To express love and appreciation for our fiancé as we're looking forward to weddings on this year. To be thankful for the differences that bring balance and uh, that completes. A guy said to me not long ago, if it was not for my wife, I'd have gone off the deep end a long time ago. (laughs) I said, amen, brother. (laughs) Amen. And you may need to pray for insight into appreciating the differences that sometimes causes friction, frustration, even conflict. Like you, she has her flaws, but she is a gift. I shared with you some time ago that according to the last information I read, the average marriage in America is lasting seven years. What a discouragement that is to our young people. And by the way, those kinds of stats are prompting a lot of kids in our society to opt just to live together. They're scared to death. But what caught my attention about the statistic is that the two highest incidents of divorce, one's within the first two to four years of marriage. Now, I understand that one, don't you? You understand that? When you adopt the culture's view of love, you're in trouble. But secondly, the second highest incident of divorce is uh, when the kids leave the nest, when you're empty nesters. Does that surprise you? It did me. Do you know what, what the, 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 the writer and the study showed? It was that couples get so involved with raising children, of course. But somehow, in the mix of everything that goes into that, they neglect their relationship one with the other. So there comes a time when uh, the children eventually leave the nest and the two of them look across the table together and and they say, you know, I don't know you. I'm not sure I want to know you. Let me remind you that Adam and Eve were a couple before the kids ever arrived in the next chapter. And that you will be not only a couple, but a family. And that you were a family before they arrived, and you will be a family after they're gone. So very, very important. If I could say one thing from this seminal passage in closing... 
I don't think I have to do this. I've been around here a while. But if I could offer one bit of information, one bit, before we move to some relationship principles. Based upon uh, almost 44 years of of marriage, um, 40 years of counseling and premarital counseling and being a student of marriage, I love this topic. I often say that one of the most exciting things I ever get privileged to do is to do premarital counseling. I love it. I love it. I'm in my element. Based upon all of that, okay, if I could offer one bit of information, one bit of encouragement, one bit of challenge, it is this. In the busyness and demands of life, give intentional priority to staying emotionally Connected. Understand your life stage. If the kids are young, understand your life stage. If they're teenagers, if you're an empty nester, no matter where you're at, understand what has to happen for you to stay emotionally connected. Don't drift apart. This past fall, I shared with you some research that I want to review this morning because it's the best thing I have ever seen. Dr. John Gottman is the godfather of family research. He and his team work out of the University of uh, Washington, Washington State. He and his team studied in detail 2,000 couples over two decades. He's written a slew of books. You don't get very far even into secular writings until John Gottman's name comes up. He says, as you're looking at it, that frequent arguing will not lead to divorce. Fighting isn't a good thing. Conflict isn't a good thing. But it's when couples disengage emotionally that they are most in danger. Sometimes that's because of conflict, lose hope. Sometimes it's um, because of time issues. There, There are a number of different reasons. To put it another way, staying engaged with each other emotionally is the key to avoiding the temptation to adultery. Spiritual engagement with God is given. Making regular deposits into the emotional love bank is crucial. Gottman uses a term that I love. He, he stresses to couple the importance of turning toward each other. He offers seven dynamic rules or principles for staying connected. And let me say, this is the part I talked about up front. These apply not only to marriage, but to a vital friendship as well. The first one is, is pay attention. I got a text from a friend this week. 
He and his wife are making a very important ministry decision. If he accepts the opportunity, it will involve him living outside the country for nine months a year. And yesterday and today, he set aside to discuss this, he and his wife together. And uh, I've been texting him every day. I'll be texting him this afternoon. I'll be texting him tomorrow. I'll be texting him. And probably tomorrow, I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm going to give him the call. You know why? He's my friend. Of course, we all have one-way relationships. You know anything about those? So frustrating. You know, you give and give and give and give and give and give, and you know, there's somebody who accepts and accepts and accepts, and they never give and give. Whoo! I hate those. Sometimes I think I'm a one-way relationship magnet. <laughs> okay, you know, I got I got friends from college I hadn't heard from in 35 years, and something happens, and they call me. Mary can tell you. I'll leave that there. I think you see the point. Pay attention. This is, Gottman gives an example on each of those. Uh, uh, how do I look? Uh, wow. Uh, did you see? Entering into one another's world. Pay attention. Number two, help solve problems. Again, all these are Gottman's examples. Uh, what should I do about my boss? Problem solving. Respond to simple requests while you're up. Could you get the salsa? That seems so simple, doesn't it? But it speaks volumes. Talk and listen. Mom called today. She talked about, oh, really? Help manage stress. I think I blew my test today. This is a great friend, isn't it? Work as a team. Hey, let's get the kids in bed now. Let's, let's, let's. And then this next one, uh, sort of smile at this one. Join in adventures. Now, uh, you have to take that one in the context, don't you? I mean, for, for some of you, uh, adventure is uh, going together to Sam's on Friday night and sampling the stuff. It's adventure. (laughs) For some of you, it's venturing out to Walmart. You know, Uh, maybe it's a date night. Maybe it's a weekend away and leaving the kids with the grandkids. That's a winner. It may mean caregiving together, running an errand together, or enjoying a cup of tea or cappuccino on a winter evening. Taking the time to turn toward each other. Peter gives an urgent word of counsel. This is the message. Keep a cool head. Stay alert. The devil is poised to pounce. And would like nothing better than to catch you napping. Keep your Guard 